Welcome to Fail Better, David Duchovny's new podcast with Lemonada Media. On Fail Better, David, who has experienced both low and high-profile failures throughout his life, explores the vast world of failure, how it holds us back, propels us forward, and ultimately shapes our lives. Each week, he'll chat with guests like Ben Stiller, Bette Midler, and more about how our perceived failures have actually been our biggest catalysts for growth, revelation, and even healing. Through these conversations, he hopes listeners can learn how to embrace the opportunity of failure and fail better together. Fail Better is out now wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. If there is a silver lining to all this, that was probably the best part of the year, which is we avoided uh, really crippling legislation uh, that could have very well been forced through uh, this month called the DCCPA. The bill itself was not terrible, but it had some really damaging DeFi language in there that could have you know, been excessively broad and, and I think really hurt the industry longer term. Not to mention, given the SEC um, much more authority and, and the ability to designate certain tokens as securities, which could have had a, a you know created much more of a deep, dark winter than I think uh, we're, we're experiencing just because of the centralized contagion that took place. Welcome back to The Breakdown with me, NLW. It's a daily podcast on macro, Bitcoin, and the big picture power shifts remaking our world. The Breakdown is sponsored by Nexo.io, Circle, and Kraken, and produced and distributed by Coindesk. What's going on, guys? It is Friday, December 23rd, and today we are finally starting our year-end coverage and doing it in grand fashion with Masari's Ryan Selkis. Before we get into that, however, if you are enjoying The Breakdown, please go subscribe to it, give it a rating, give it a review, or if you want to dive deeper into the conversation, come join us on The Breakers Discord. You can find the link in the show notes or go to bit.ly slash breakdown pod. All right, guys. Well, like I said, we are finally on end of year coverage. No more SBF shenanigans interrupting us. And we're starting off in a great way. Because for the last six years, Masari CEO Ryan Selkis has released a crypto thesis, a set of thoughts ideas about what happened and what was to happen, which is, of course, the theme of these interviews as well. This year, the document is a whopping 170 pages, and it just came out yesterday, and there is so much to dig into. Of particular note, I think, is Ryan's front row seat to much of the Sam in DC drama, and we get into all of that and so much more. So without any further ado, let's dive in. All right, Ryan, welcome back to The Breakdown. How are you, sir? Good to be here. Thanks for having me again. It's good to see you. Yeah, no, for for sure. I, you know, so we were talking a little bit about before. I think it's funny when I do most interviews, there's a clear entree point for everyone, right? It's like, oh, let's talk about proof of reserves in Bitcoin, which is someone I just had on earlier today, or let's talk about, you know, XYZ. Whereas uh one of the things that you have done alongside everything that you've built is 
this sort of massive year-end reflection that I think serves as a really good way for other people to kind of uh, reflect on their own piece of the pie, but also be interested in, in in other parts. And so I think that the only place that it makes sense to start is is actually just extremely broad, and and we'll kind of see where the conversation takes us from there. So with that said, what is the worst thing that happened to crypto this year, and what is the best thing? I would love to be cute and try to come up with a clever answer aside from FTX, but I mean, the FTX implosion was obviously the worst thing that happened in the year, but not necessarily just for the size uh, of the bankruptcy and, and all the ripple effects and contagion, but because of the general perception that the public had of FTX, uh, both Wall Street, you know, kind of mainstream institutional audiences that put a bunch of money in this, um, and then, you know, obviously DC, where, where Sam was was particularly active. So, I think it was a black eye on on those couple of fronts, in addition to you know just being highly damaging to the the crypto industry. I also think that those uh, ripple effects aren't necessarily you know fully fleshed out yet. Uh, you know we still have a, a situation at Genesis and DCG, um, which is a little bit of a black box and it's concerning. Um, and maybe we'll get into that, but that that could present some further contagion risk. I do think. If there is a silver lining to all this, that was probably the best part of the year, which is we avoided uh, really crippling legislation uh, that could have very well have been forced through uh, this month called the DCCPA. The bill itself was not terrible, but it had some really damaging DeFi language in there that could have you know, been excessively broad and, and I think really hurt the industry longer term. So um, not to mention, given the SEC um, much more authority and and the ability to designate certain tokens as, as securities, which... Uh, could have had a, a you know created much more of a deep dark winter than I think uh, we're, we're experiencing just because of the centralized contagion that took place. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, obviously having been a first party to uh, a lot of this, I have often felt in the last month sort of torn between one the frustration with what was contrasted with the counterfactual imagining of what might have been had this been allowed to go on for two more years, three more years, five more years. If you think about the sort of sheer tonnage of the wreckage created by this guy who literally no one had heard the name of about two years ago, it's hard to kind of imagine. And I think it's a bleak silver lining, of course. And I think your kind of example of the DCCPA is a more uh, sort of prescient example of one little piece of of why, you know, uh, of course, had we our druthers, we would have just preferred for that never to have been a thing. But if it was going to be a thing, if the industry was going to deal with this fraud, it's almost like the the best day to discover it was any day <laughs> leading up to yesterday or today. And the, the second best day was today, right? Let's talk a little bit about some of that fallout and the contagion that might remain. Right now, it feels like there is a real hush, pause, just slow down in terms of activity. And it, it's not you know with young startups or builders or anything like that, but in terms of the big institutional players in crypto, advertising budgets are frozen, marketing budgets are frozen. And it feels a little bit like everyone is... It's not that they assume that 2023 is going to be a dead year. It's that no one is willing to sort of make the first move back towards normalcy until they're convinced that normalcy is on the docket again. And I guess I'm wondering, A, if, if that is your impression too, if that's what you're experiencing, but B, what you think the key kind of uh, contagion 
risk factors are, things that people are watching. Obviously, you mentioned Genesis and DCG as one, but you know, I'd love to dig into that more. Yeah, I, I think um, the biggest question is, has the credit unwinding this this kind of daisy chain of bad bad credit, you know, fully run its course, and 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 have uh, all the folks that needed to be liquidated been liquidated? And I think uh, the answer is we're getting close, uh, but we're maybe not fully at the end. Um, I do believe that that might be fully priced in at this point because there's only so much negative news that could come out or there's only so much size that could really hit the market um, in a forced liquidation that it feels like it's just a, a maybe there's a couple walking dead companies um, that were the, the last remaining lenders uh, that were distressed that have to find some resolution, whether it's a bankruptcy or, or you know, some negotiated settlement with their creditors. But, you know, after that, uh, you know, I, I think that we can resume normal operations to the extent that we're ever going to go back to, you know, fully normal. Um, and, you know, one thing that I think is an advantage for us going into the new year, have things uh, come back down to earth so rapidly that uh, maybe we get to hide in plain sight again for one more cycle. I, I don't really think that that's uh, that we're going to have that luxury this time around. But it is a possibility with the gridlock Congress, you know, if, if you get to, you know, six months from now, nine months from now, you start to get into the, the presidential cycle. And um, and if it's clear that there's not going to be a bipartisan, you know, piece of legislation that can come out from Congress, then, um, you know, it it basically, you know, allows us to play this game of, of trench warfare uh, and, and fight back against the regulation by enforcement from the SEC and, and some of the other regulators and, and fight that out in courts. Um, versus, you know, uh, in you know some legislative process. So um, I'd say, you know, twenty twenty three that that is going to be the biggest challenge for the industry is is where does public policy uh, come out uh, of, of all this? Uh, I think you know you can be hopeful and optimistic that there's some common sense policy that's enacted that oversees you know, centralized exchanges, gives them some clarity, that uh, gives some clarity in terms of how stable coins should be regulated. And um, and then ultimately has you know some some way of defining what these assets are, um, whether they're commodities, currencies, securities. What what are those litmus litmus tests and, and kind of what are the standards around disclosures for all three? Um, but that's probably asking a lot. The first two may be possible, uh, th- and, and may be possible that we'll see them in in 2023. But uh, I think we're going to be in this kind of messy gray area for quite some time still uh, with respect to how do you actually define these tokens. And that really is uh, the difference between this becoming you know, a mainstream asset class and um, and something that is is kind of relegated to the the tech frontier and, and the sandbox for for all intents and purposes from a lot of more serious players. So it's it's interesting. I am obviously a very active observer, but not a participant in DC conversations. And it seems to me that the window on there being too few people in Congress who understood crypto enough to kind of be suckered into thinking that because Sam committed fraud, everything in the place should be burned to the ground. It seems like that window has passed. And so the world in which this becomes the bully cudgel through which uh, a comprehensive negative legislation is enacted seems like a relatively narrow path. You still have champions in the Tom Emmers of the world, the Patrick McHenry's of the world, and many of them have sort of gotten more, not less power in this last election cycle. Where it seems like there may be then 
room is on these very sort of common sense, to your points, more discreet things, right? So instead of a Lummis Gillibrand Responsible Financial Innovation Act, maybe we get the Centralized Exchange Act, which has rules that, you know, probably all of us could agree to pretty quickly, or or at least within, you know, kind of some amount of reason. Is that your read as well, that to the extent that there is legislation that ends up actually making it through next year, it's more likely to be discreet around centralized exchanges, custodians, stable coins than it is sort of comprehensive? Or is that being overly optimistic? Honestly, I'm not sure. I think everything's on the table, right? You know, I, I would say the um, the probability that we get stablecoin legislation, I'd say greater than 50%. Uh, the probability that we get any other uh, comprehensive legislation or kind of rules around the exchanges, maybe under 50%. Um, and the reason for that is, you know, the more variables that you introduce, uh, the the harder it's going to be uh, to push something through Congress. I think that's always going to be true. Um, it's going to be especially difficult when you've got um, Republican control in the House and, uh, frankly, a much more friendly um, Republican you know, staff and and, and members um, on financial services and, and ag in the House uh, than you do in the Senate, where Senate banking is is you know without a doubt the most you know openly hostile foe that I think the industry has with um, with with uh, Senator Brown and and Warren leading the charge there. So um, you know there's there's a path right there's there's always a way if there's some will from the part of Congress. But this goes back to my my opening point, which is because the markets have come so far down and there's been so much that's already been washed out. Are legislators going to put this as their top priority as like a too big to fail? We must regulate it now. It's almost like they missed the window, right? So maybe, you know, because they weren't urgent, you know, now there's no longer any urgency because, you know, the industry is collapsing under its own weight. There's a chance that that could be a sentiment um, next year and 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 the, the, the moment passes and we're basically waiting until, you know, 2025 uh, when there's a new administration um, to uh, to see anything uh, and, and and whether there's something more comprehensive that can be passed. Yeah. Let's go back, I think, uh, to, to kind of uh, outside of D.C. and a little bit broader. One of the ways that you kicked off the theses this year was with the sort of uh, <laughs> the let, let's let's pivot away from Web3 again. Let's pivot away from that moniker. Let's get back to crypto. W- what do you mean by that? I just think the term Web3 was a curse. Um and I think that it was, you know, overly cute, uh, and uh, it was, you know, packaged in, in a way to, you know, attract as much, you know, favor, curry as much political favor as possible, um, because it didn't sound quite so scary as as crypto. Um, I just think it's got a bad juju attached to it. It also doesn't really mean anything, right? It was like a contrived marketing term versus something that was, you know, kind of organic, um, and. I just uh, when when we think about classifications, you know, we started thinking about like Web three as a sector being things like you know Filecoin and distributed storage, or you know uh, video transcoding like LivePeer, and 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 I think you know we just discarded that entirely in 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 place of you know, what we call DPN decentralized physical infrastructure networks. It's more descriptive. It's less hand wavy, um, and I think it it kind of completes the. Uh, the sector overview, if you think about like NFTs, DeFi, um, decentralized social, right, DSOC or DSO, um, there, there's a bunch of other uh, pretty good descriptive shorthands for the different sectors of the industry. And Web3 was just kind of this like floating, ambiguous, trying to be all encompassing term that I think we should retire and just get back to crypto. 
the Web3 thing did kind of have um, it a little bit had echoes of uh, tokenize everything, tokenize the world from the 2017 cycle, where it was sort of ceased to be about money crypto and it was about tech crypto again. I mean, you remember because you were there, you were writing about it, but there was that whole, I mean, when we were bored in 2018 and no one had anything else to talk about, debates between tech crypto and money crypto. And I think a lot of what happened over the next couple of years was that the moneyness of crypto came to the fore. I think DeFi was a huge part of that, is that even sort of in the Ethereum and sort of smart contract world, the money applications sort of came surging back and Web3 with the combination of NFTs and and, uh, and metaverse stuff, I think, you know, certainly expanded. And, and I guess maybe, you know, how much are, is this space one space anymore in your estimation? You know, between from you have Bitcoin, you have NFTs, or, you know, are they are they really all part of the same thing? Uh, are they only part of the same thing because from the outside they look like the same thing? I mean, how do you how do you think about that? Obviously, as you know, as a company that has to kind of characterize and figure out how these things relate to one another. I think that Bitcoin and NFTs are operating on different sides of the same neighborhood, right? So I, I still think that you can classify these uh, different innovations as, as all being under the crypto umbrella. Um, but you know, Bitcoin is very much a a monetary technology that that will do well in an environment where you know, macro forces or, or, you know, debasing currencies and, uh, and, and creating pressures, especially in international, like non-reserve or emerging market, you know, kind of currencies, that could be something that, that leads to a resurgence for Bitcoin next year. If you see, um, if you see some, uh, additional like monetary pressures in, in, in different regions of the world. So we just, you know, we've seen this, uh, recently with Ghana, it's happened in Argentina and, and Venezuela and Turkey and different pockets of the world. Have experienced um, you know, pretty significant pressure on that front. Um, NFTs, on the other hand, that's that's kind of like a mainstream, you know, consumable, a, a consumer good. Um, you're leveraging the same technology, but I think it's a very different demographic audience, right? And you know, people like to say, well, when these technologies hit scale, no one's really going to know what they are under the hood. They're just going to use them, and, and they're going to recognize that. Um, and that may well be true, um, but I think that you know, all these uh, different sectors within crypto have ultimately uh, grown and almost had like their overlying overlaying hype cycles, right? So DeFi got cold uh, before the Alt L1 thesis got cold, and, and that happened before you know the NFT you know market you know cooled off. So um, each one of these were kind of like parallel hype cycles. It was Bitcoin, and then it was DeFi summer, and then it was Alt L1s. And then NFTs, and then it kind of moved, you know, this hot potato kind of moved from one to the other. Now we're at a period where everything seems to be consolidating. And, you know, we'll see which bottoms out first. But I, I think that, you know, like other cycles, it might be likely that the thing that bottoms out first is Bitcoin and Ethereum. And then ultimately everything else kind of gets pulled up after that. But, you know, we are still looking for, you know, mainstream app that, uh, that will, you know, pull demand for crypto instead of us just kind of pushing this and 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 hoping that some of these solutions ultimately have you know problems that they're uh, they're meeting in an ecosystem where innovation is the norm it's the basics that are in the spotlight nexo is a company that has never put the safety of clients funds in question 
With over 50 global licenses, $775 million in insurance, and a real-time audit of custodial assets, Nexos sets an example for security standards in the industry. Apart from keeping their 5 million clients safe, Nexo has kept building. They've just announced their non-custodial smart wallet. Visit nexo.io, that's N-E-X-O.io, and sign up today. This episode is brought to you by Circle, the sole issuer of USDC and a leader in crypto that's held to a higher standard. USDC is a fast, safe, and efficient way to send money around the globe. USDC is always redeemable one-to-one for US dollars and has over $45 billion in circulation as of October 13th, 2022. Plus, Circle posts weekly reserve reports and monthly attestations of reserve capital, letting users know that USDC is safe, transparent, and compliant with regulations. Just go to circle.com backslash transparency to see why USDC is a trusted stablecoin. Kraken Pro is an all-new, powerful trading experience for advanced traders. Spot trade, margin trade, and stake, all from a single interface. With customization tools unlike any other, Kraken Pro lets you set up your trading interface in the exact way you want. It's all backed by Kraken's industry-leading security and award-winning client engagement teams that are available for support 24-7. No matter how you like to trade, Kraken Pro is built to make it happen. Visit pro.kraken.com or download the Kraken Pro app on Google Play or the Apple App Store today. Bitcoin and Ethereum have been through bear markets before and have sort of come out and kind of, you know, been been reborn. This is the first cycle where you have NFTs sort of, you know, after their kind of emergence and an explosion onto the scene going through it. Um, I think you could say that more broadly about kind of metaverse stuff, although who the hell knows what that means. And I think with DeFi, it's kind of weird because it hasn't exactly gone through a bear market, but it kind of had a bear market during the bull market. But what do you think from kind of the an NFT standpoint is important for that community to prove or to build or to see during this bear market? Um, I don't know that I have a good answer to that. What I believe about NFTs is that most of them are consumables, right? So I, I think because NFTs were a new hot sector of crypto that everybody got really riled up about, and you know, you saw these kind of crazy opportunities to you know flip uh, JPEGs after a big release, and and the market was basically just a, a speculative you know fury and and late last year and, and kind of early this year, um, people lost sight of the fact that these are basically, you know, consumables, right? So I'm not sure how much resale value most NFTs are going to have going forward. I think they will look and feel more like, you know, collector's items and um, and and digital goods today, which, you know, digital goods today, if you're talking about like in-game skins or, you know, upgrades to your avatar, Predominantly, they're not resellable, and if they are, then the, the game maker is taking a, you know a, a massive cut of that. So I think people have you know today are, are, are more or less conditioned to not really think about these uh, digital goods as as like real you know sustainably valuable property so much as like nice to haves that are you know part of their you know, digital uh, wardrobe. And I would actually compare it to um, uh, to clothes, right? Um, you buy a new suit or new sneakers or new shirt, like whatever it is, there's wear and tear on that. And when you, when you go sell that, you know, you're going to Goodwill or you're, you know, you're, you're getting maybe, you know, 20 cents on the dollar for what you paid initially, maybe, right. If it's in good condition, 
because there's just not as much, you know, resale value and, and used clothes. Um, and I ultimately think that uh, that's probably going to be the case with NFTs. And most of them, the resale value is going to be significantly less than that. So you have to really like uh, what you're buying or, you know, you might not be happy with the end results. Um, this whole artificial scarcity in uh, the NFT space, I'm not dismissing like outright, but the comparison I've made is, you know, okay, if you think about digital art versus the art physical art world, the digital art like NFT space actually had a lot of parallels to 2013 Bitcoin, right? If you think about Bitcoin as like digital gold to physical gold. Well, we know what happened next. There was a 90% drawdown, but ultimately, you know, Bitcoin, you know, is, is slowly catching up now. It's maybe you know, 10% of the physical gold market. So even if you think the NFT space is going to have, follow a Bitcoin-like trajectory in terms of market share capture versus, you know, physical brand goods, if you will, um, which I think is, is very likely, I don't think that that means that NFT projects themselves are getting more valuable. I just think that the number of NFTs is growing. So if you're an NFT, you know, creator, uh, if you're a brand, if you're, you know, uh, if you're a game maker, that's very interesting because it opens up a new monetization scheme. If you're a creator and, and you're looking at things like fan tokens or other goods, you know, very, very interesting. But if you're the consumer of it, um, I think you you have to you know, be excited about what you're paying for and, and what you're ultimately going to get and, and, and just anticipate that there's not going to be any resale value to those goods. No, it's it's interesting. I mean, I've been fascinated to see to what extent the NFT community is sort of almost blithely unaware or uncaring <laughs> about what's gone on with the rest of the things. I mean, certainly they notice it in terms of sort of prices and and whatever, you know, the correlations there. But, you know, those discords and telegram chats are very, very different than the rest of the crypto world as relates to the last month and a half. Well, I think that folks in the NFT market can afford to stay irrational longer than most because uh there's there's no real-time ticker for a an n of one good yeah, yeah so yeah. They, they can't actually see their uh their net worth evaporating they just they just think that it's an isolated problem that's happening in the rest of crypto and yeah i i obviously think that you know nothing could be further from the truth but um you know we'll uh we'll see i'm not rooting i'm, I'm it's not like i'm actively rooting against any nft uh projects i think uh, NFTs is as you know a class of crypto and and as a, a really interesting part of the digital economy going forward. You know, it's going to continue to be a big you know kind of ten year trend that we're in the very beginning of. But um, my point is more on the speculation uh, around it. I, yeah, I, yeah. I'm very uh, skeptical that's going to return in in any meaningful way for many years, if ever. Um. So two trends that have been. I wouldn't go so as far as to say people are getting really excited about them, but certainly there's more chatter than there was a little bit uh, that you didn't spend much time on are, uh, one, the institutions are coming, institutionalization, and two, uh, you do you do touch on it, but sort of uh, tokenization of real-world assets, which sort of is uh, is storming back as a narrative. What are your thoughts on those two? Is it is sort of the not buying them or just they're not interesting relative to other things going on that are more crypto native to you? Well, yeah, I think the context here is that I've lived through multiple cycles. Yeah. And <laughs> when you get financial institutions in crypto that are you know responsible and, and reporting to shareholders on a quarterly basis, if you're spending a lot of money 
on you know building out a crypto arm in the in the depths of winter, um, it generally fizzles out, and and this tends to be the first thing that that gets cut uh, in in some of those institutional efforts. Now you know, we can argue maybe this time is different, right? We've we've had some cross the chasm moments where you know crypto is here to stay for institutions, and and in fact I think there's a good argument that that you know this time is a little bit different just because of the adoption of stable coins. So some of these big um, financial firms are, are going to have some crypto infrastructure in place just because uh, of the boom in stable coins and the fact that those you know assets and those volumes are not going away. You know, USDC just had a record month in November in terms of transaction volumes. It's been up and to the right, you know, unabated uh, in spite of everything that's been going on in the rest of the market. With with that as a caveat, you know, I've seen a lot of institutions, you know, get excited and then, you know, kind of pull back the reins. Um, for you know regulatory reasons, for you know just market size reasons, once the tide goes out, and um, we'll see you know if this time's different, but um, I'll believe it when I see it, uh, and and I'll spend time on the players that are are kind of serious um, about this when I see it. I think a complicating factor in 2023 is that we're also you know staring down a recession, like an actual recession, not just a crypto winter. So um, I do think that there will be some boards and management teams that are under you know significant pressure to jettison things that are viewed as non-core or kind of play areas and um and crypto would certainly seem to be high on that list right um do i think that fidelity is going to jettison you know their their crypto team no but they're the exception that kind of proves the rule because they've been building out their operations cycle to cycle and in fact you know i would argue one of the reasons they've been able to do so is because it's a private company now, will you see the same level of experimentation and you know depth from uh, from some of the big publicly traded banks? I'm not sure. Um, time will tell. But I didn't spend a lot of time, as you noted, in the report. I think part of the reason that I asked is a little bit tongue in cheekly is that exactly that that sort of that's I remember the same conversations in 2018, 2019. Which, by the way, is uh, be wrong to think that because a narrative had a time four years ago that it wasn't the right time for it now. But it's just kind of interesting to note. Um, one of the things that you do well that I think is uh, in in too short supply sometimes is you're you're not a doom prophet even when you're prophesizing doom. Let's call it right, <laughs> uh, and that's a, that's actually a meaningful distinction because one of the best ways to get Twitter engagement, Twitter cloud, you know, content engagement is to be a doomsayer. This is a tried and true business model, and we've watched. I mean, I am live watching a whole new crop of these folks pop up right now over the last six weeks. In that context, right now, you know, outside of DCG, the one big player that people are most scared of, there are two big players that people are most scared of something happening, another shoe to drop, not necessarily based on a lot other than kind of pattern recognition and fear, and that's Binance and Tether. What is your sense of those two right now? And I'm, I'm neither asking you to FUD nor to defend, just kind of, you know, raw senses you're observing and looking for the signals that would make you either uh, concerned or not concerned. What, what do you see? Well, I have, I have a little bit of a different take on both of those um, situations in that I think that the fear, uncertainty, and doubt and people being scared is a good thing. I think that some of that is unfounded, but I think it, it's definitely a good thing because without it, you do have systemic risks at Binance um, and with Tether that would be difficult for the industry to overcome if there were any real issues. You know, Binance was up to 75%, you know, 80% of trading volumes uh, for, for you know, many crypto pairs in, uh, out of the centralized exchange space. Um, Tether is still you know, dominant internationally as, as like a digital euro dollar. Um, the, but the good news is 
what I think will happen with Binance is already starting to happen with Tether. That is, um, its market share will be eroded naturally, maybe because of some of these fears, um, and you know, hopefully with some regulatory certainty in, in Europe and the U.S. And uh, if you look at you know Tether's market cap dominance, I you know it was ninety percent a couple of years ago. I think that's down to about 45% somewhere in there. Like USDC is rocketing up, you know, nearly catching up um, Binance USD, which is uh, you know, a white labeled product built with uh, with Paxos, right? Those are two highly regulated stable coins. Um, BUSD through Paxos, you know, actually you know, comes from a New York trust company. Uh, Paxos is, is one of the uh, only companies in crypto that has a, a trust company charter. I think you know, there might be one other, it just it's a unique uh, and highly regulated, you know, business that they're running. And so, um, you know, when you're looking uh, at institutional players that might be thinking about dabbling in stable coins, they're going to go to Paxos, they're going to go to USDC. Tether is going to be relegated to this, you know, offshore settlement um, currency. And so I think, you know, the market shares slowly started to reflect, we shouldn't put all of our eggs in this international basket that's a, a little bit of a black box. I think the same you know, is likely to be true for, for Binance in 2023. And frankly, I think it, it's going to be healthier for Binance if they don't have 70% market share, right? Um, I, I think there's plenty of food to go around uh, if this looks like a market where there's you know a few 25 to, to you know, 35% market share players in different pockets of the globe. It starts to get a little bit hairier if you're you know looking at one dominant you know 800-pound gorilla like you see with Binance. So... Nature is healing, I guess, is the way that I look at this. But um, I I think that the risks are more you know regulatory in nature than oh no we've got another FTX on our hands. Just my just my hunch. So the one thing I will say is I had asked friends over the summer like I know that FTX Alameda did well like it doesn't make sense to me how they have this much money to bail out BlockFi and Voyager. And, you know, I just kind of got pushed aside, you know, uh, a little bit like, oh, it's fine. They made a bunch of money on Sol and, and, and AVAX and whatnot, but couldn't really make the numbers that I've just kind of trusted that, you know, this is something that was covered in, in due diligence from the new investors. Right. But with Binance, it's a little bit different. Like Binance, you can actually figure out where they made it, like just a, an enormous amount of money because they're the market leader in exchange. And, you know, the economics of the exchanges, you know, how much money Coinbase made last year. And you know that you know Binance is is you know at least probably five x the size of Coinbase in terms of volumes and and, and their business. So um, that's one thing that doesn't keep me up at night is like where did their money come from? Because you can run the numbers uh, and and you can see that just based on their market share and their performance and, and how many assets they covered, um, that it makes sense that they're in the position that they're in. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I think that makes sense. I could kind of grill you on this all day long or, or just kind of dig in with you. But, uh, you know, as, as by way of wrapping up, as you were digging into this, were there any of these trends, you know, across any of the sort of parts of the industry that you found alarming or, or something that are sort of it's a trend that you're noting, but it's a trend that makes you worried? And then on the flip side, uh, the trends that when you think about kind of what comes next in 2023 and beyond, you're most optimistic about? Um. I don't know if I'm alarmed by it uh, or not. And, and you you asked a two-part question earlier, so I'll kind of go back to it in terms of real-world assets. I think it's something to keep a close eye on. Um, and Maker versus, say, you know, Ave with with Ave's new stablecoin coming out next year is going to be a, a, an interesting one to watch because the majority of MakerDAO's revenue at this point is coming from U.S. Treasuries and USDC. 
where it was, you know, five percent maybe of their, you know, total uh, revenue at the six month mark this year. So they are they are essentially a, a a yield aggregator, if you will, of you know U.S. dollar denominated assets and, and treasuries, um, which I didn't have on my bingo card going into 2022. Now people could talk about whether that creates centralization risks and whether that's a good thing. You know, I, I could I could make the argument either way. Um, I, I don't think it's good or bad per se. I just think it's different. And and what it does do is open the door for another crypto lending protocol to create a more decentralized uh, derivative stablecoin, right? So if you think that DAI is now subject to some of these centralization risks, um, maybe Aave and, and, and its new stablecoin uh, Go uh, will be the the platonic ideal of decentralization. And that will, you know, whittle away uh, or, or, you know, kind of siphon off some demand from MakerDAO because you'll have some cohort of users that don't want to be subject to, you know, rug risks from regulators or, or kind of, you know, powers that be uh, that, that, you know, might be upstream to the, the MakerDAO uh, vaults. So again, not good or bad, but just different. And and I think, you know, there's going to be a number of uh, protocols that are um, starting to, to cross over into the real world assets uh, in, in, in short order. And um, at scale, I think that is, good and probably necessary and the natural, like, you know, uh, the the end game for crypto is to be incorporated into the real financial system. Um, but there's going to be bumps along the way. In terms of things that I'm most excited about, I think um, decentralized uh, infrastructure and, and continued um, hardening of uh, some of these protocols in terms of their censorship resistance has come a long way. So, you know, I think a lot of People over the summer were concerned about Ethereum's you know, censorship uh, or censorability of transactions with the tornado cash uh, sanctions. But there's two ways that you can um, harden the protocol against that. One is through software updates, which Vitalik has already committed to, added a, you know, an entire section to the Ethereum roadmap called the Scourge uh, to, um, to basically uh, help uh, mitigate some of these risks from from MEV that could result in censorship, and then you know tying back to that other theme of decentralized hardware, um, you know having a, a decent decentralized network of you know uh, RPC nodes or miners or or you know other you know uh, storage protocols, whatever it is, you don't run into the same risk as uh, if you're talking about alchemy. And uh, a, a certain contract is flagged in the OFAC list and, and you at Alchemy need to make a decision as to whether you're going to process transactions uh, to that address or not. The answer is you're not going to, right? A decentralized network of hardware that's running a similar service might because it's it's not necessarily subject to the rules of one specific jurisdiction. So um, I'm not commenting on whether that's you know good or bad. I certainly think that you know there's you know, good reasons. Um, for sanctions, <laughs> obviously, and uh, I think we'd like to see less uh, money getting, you know, uh, stolen by you know, Lazarus and and the the North Korean hacking groups from you know, bridge hacks next year. But uh, I don't think that you know we should be anticipating that's the last attempt at censorship that we're going to see as an industry. And so you want to nip that in the bud now and start to build resiliency into the system uh, so that you know, we don't run into a situation where these are you know, decentralized or censorship resistant and name only networks. Yeah. Um, great thoughts. I guess by, by way of last question, you've been here a number of cycles now. Uh, for those who have, this is their first time through a 
bear market. <laughs> We're just clinging, clinging on white knuckled. Uh, what words of advice would you give? Wear a helmet. <laughs> uh, no, that's, that's one of my go-tos. I think, um, you know, I would, I would look at trends where the numbers are still up and to the right, right? Every price is down right now. But if you look at different products or, or, or protocols that are being used and whose adoption is still growing in spite of the, the headwinds, or at least like leveling off, I think it gives you some pretty good signal in terms of you know where where there are pockets that you can still build and innovate. You know, Uniswap is a is a good example, right? Volumes are way down, but if you overlay the volumes chart of Coinbase and Uniswap, Uniswap's within twenty to forty percent at any given time, uh, which is pretty wild, right? Um, if you look at uh, things like uh, you know file storage, there's more supply hitting the market. Uh, you know, everything in the deep pin space, uh, de- decentralized physical infrastructure networks it has, has been doing pretty well. Um, ENS uh, and uh, and some of these like, you know, identity and namespace um, systems uh, have continued to do well. Decentralized social is, is picking up steam with things like Lens and Forecaster. So I would look for things that are still growing. Um, if there's something that's growing in this environment, you can tell uh, it, there's a pretty good shot that it's not a flash in the pan. There, there's some real kernel of innovation because the market has just been awful. Uh, so if you're growing in this market, uh, that's that's you know going to bode well for for you know future more bountiful years. Awesome, Ryan. Well, thank you once again from the uh, entire crypto community for taking the time to do these theses uh, and for all your work. I'm excited to see what what you guys build next year at Masari and uh, what you do as an individual as well. Thank you. Always a pleasure. Cheers. All right, guys, back to NLW here. And listen, one of the common threads across the interviews you'll hear is a real clear-eyed sort of disposition heading into 2023. If there is one upside of the incredible flameouts and betrayals of this year, it's that we head into next year with a much clearer field of vision around what needs to happen and frankly, what matters overall. I appreciate Ryan taking so much time to release these theses and then to come talk with me and you guys all about it. And I'm looking forward to you guys hearing the rest of these interviews. Until tomorrow, be safe and take care of each other. Peace. With Chime Secure Credit Card, you can start improving your credit scores with everyday purchases and regular on-time payments. Get started at Chime.com slash build. The Chime Credit Builder Visa Credit Card is issued by Bancorp Bank NA or Stride Bank NA. Members FDIC. Results may vary. See Chime.com for details. Terms and conditions apply. Go to Chime.com slash disclosures for details.